we are going to take a few moments uh, in a while to look at a passage of Scripture and uh, study together the truth of the resurrection. Uh, but as Pastor Austin mentioned, if you're new with us this morning and are wondering what we do here, who we are, we have several ways you can find out online is our statement of faith, of course. We have material in the foyer. We meet every Wednesday evening at 5.30 for an agape meal and then 6.30 for a Bible study. Sundays at 10, there are men's studies on Tuesday nights, women's studies Thursday morning, Thursday nights. And it's just a great place to call home and to be a family to. We, of course, a couple months away having our Vacation Bible School coming up. If you have children, that's going to be a powerful time for them. Just next week, and the ladies have put together a women's retreat, and I apologize, but they're at maximum capacity at this point, so uh, please keep that retreat in your prayers. Uh, moving forward, we're just continuing to walk with God in troubled times. We've seen the last two years um, a horrific impact on our country and our society and on the world. And yet here we have refused to close our doors. We remain open and seeking to minister the word of God to the community here in Valley Springs. So we're grateful you're here this morning and pray the Lord will bless you. Before we get into our study, there are two things that we want to do. Uh, one is by way of announcement, I will make you aware of an assembly bill coming up this next week. This is AB223. Uh, We're not real political here, but uh, I can bring to you legislation that threatens life. And if you want to get a hold of your legislator and let them know how you feel about this bill, uh, 223 will make infanticide, killing the unborn baby, legal in California. This unprecedented bill states that a person will not be subject to civil or criminal liability or penalty based on their actions with respect to their pregnancy or actual pregnancy, potential or alleged pregnancy, outcome including miscarriage, stillbirth, or abortion of perinatal death. In other words, after a child is born. So uh, we stand wholeheartedly against that here, and you're welcome to follow up online, get a hold of your legislation, and let them know how you feel about that becoming law in the state. Uh, secondly, though, and on a much lighter note, somewhat bitter and sweet, is oftentimes families come uh, to Calvary Chapel, Valley Springs, and they plug in, and we get the privilege of walking with them for a week, a year, decades. And I have a, a, a great privilege of often being um, a teacher, someone who gets to watch their family grow, have them bring children into the world, grandchildren. What, a, what an honor. And occasionally those families move on. Uh, they either take up different residence or perhaps they feel called to another church or something. And it's at that kind of time when someone has been a part of your church family for so long, you don't want to just let them go and it's like, okay, they're gone. <laughs> How rude would that be? 
And so we often take a moment to pray over a family and uh, tell them we love them and that we'll be praying for their best to take place. And such a family is, of course, Jerry and Kathy Meeks. They are moving in about a week and a half, Jerry? Arkansas. And uh, we would like to pray over you this morning if you would allow us to do that. Would you and Kathy please come forward? been a long time. How many years have you been here? About 20? 22, Jerry says 22. That's a long step. I think I watch that step. Huh? We are going to miss you greatly. I know you'll miss us. At least we trust you'll miss us. And uh, there's a daughter back there, right? And you guys are heading to be closer to family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're very grateful to have had a part in your life for these years, and we hope to stay in touch uh, as time goes on. Hope you'll keep us in the loop how you we'll find back. a new home. And... We'll come visit. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Well, we would welcome that. Treasure it. Yeah. Will you join me as we pray over these guys this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jerry and Kathy, for their place in our hearts and in this fellowship. Lord, we know that uh, as they move, that you go before them. You are their rear guard. You will uphold them. And Lord, we trust that as you plant them in another state, in another community, in another body of believers that where you have already prepared and already know that you will continue to bless them, use them for your glory, grant them every gift of your Holy Spirit, and cause them to rejoice in the goodness of our God. And these things we will commit to you and trust you to do we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you. Take a moment, if you would, after service. Be sure and give them a handshake, hug, kiss, holy kiss. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, will you turn with me, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Now, if you need a Bible this morning, we have extra Bibles. and We'd love for you to follow along with your eyes as well as your ears. Just slip up your hand, and uh, an usher will be sure to put one in your hand so that you can follow along. Our reading this morning, congregationally, is going to be the first nine verses of chapter 24 of Luke. And I will take verse 1 and the odd-numbered verses if you'll take verse 2 and the even-numbered verses. And we'll read through uh, 1 through 9. But may I invite you please to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll begin with chapter 24, verse 1, if you would then take verse 2 and so on. Luke, chapter 24, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, 
They and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Verse 2. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, it's your word and it is inerrant, eternal. And Lord, we trust this morning for you to speak. Though the passage may be familiar or it may be unknown, we know that you are able by the work of your Holy Spirit to lift the ink off the page and put its meaning into the seat of our heart. And that, Lord, you would be glorified in this, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Throughout history, there have been uh, various men that were known for their ability to make great calculations, to take numerical truth and calculate and engineer great feats, to take social climates and calculate the needs for change and innovation. And the process of calculating things throughout life is a historic fact that you and I can find in many given areas. This morning, which is a special morning in that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'd like to bring to you a brief topical study that deals with calculating something as well. I speak, of course, of a calculation that comes to those who were immediately affected by his resurrection. The calculation that came upon those who in those first hours were impacted by what the Bible calls an empty tomb. Many were impacted in those first days. We know the Bible tells us that he was seen in his resurrected state for over 40 days by over 500. But in those first few moments, I would like to take a few minutes to put our attention on a small group that were immediately impacted 
who they were, what their reaction to the resurrection was, and how it changed their lives. And the intent of this topical study this morning is to close with a question, where do you find yourself as we look at these groups of individuals? How do you react to the fact of his resurrection? And what change has it brought in your life? So I back us up to verse 1 of Mark chapter 24. And I begin by looking at the first calculation has to do, as I said, with those who were immediately affected by the empty tomb and by the resurrection. There were four groups in those first handful of hours. The first of these groups would have been none other than the religious leaders of Jerusalem. The chief priests, the Pharisees, they were the spiritual elite, if you will. They were held in high esteem by all the Hebrew community. They were the ones that you went to if you had a question about the law of Moses. They were the ones you sought after if you had a question about the application of moral truth in your community. Today, in our internet society and Wikipedia worlds and fast, you know, 4G information, where do you go to get answers to the questions of spiritual truth, moral relevancy, or just how to get through a given day? The spiritual leaders were that in Jesus' day, and particularly in this moment of the resurrection. But there was something that they carried, and it was a great deal of pride. We're told in Matthew 23 that their works that they did to be seen by men, they make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogues. They like to be greeted in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. But Jesus, in speaking of them to his followers, said, Matthew 23, 8, he said, but you do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But you, you who is greatest among you, shall be servant of all. Many of you missed it, but we had a biblical dinner here a week and a half ago, and it was a fresh reminder to me that in Jesus' Last Supper, unlike the picture by da Vinci of all the disciples sitting at a flat table with Jesus in the middle, a table that they sat at, they sat on the floor in a U-shape. And if you were here, you, you got this lesson by our guest, Jay McCarl, biblicaldinners.com, if you ever want to look at it. It's, it's revolutionary. But in that U-shaped, it's called triclinium, the 
bodyguard would be at the front of the, uh, looking at it this way, be the left side of the triclinium. The next person would be the host. That would have been Jesus. The next person to the host on his left would have been the guest of honor who was none other than Judas Iscariot. And the breaking of the bread in that day and in that culture, they would have taken the bread and culturally they were to put the bread in the mouth of the person immediately to their left. And when you put bread in another person's mouth that you had broken, in their culture, what you were saying is, I love you, you are my friend, I highly esteem you, I would die for you, and I forgive you. Unlike the Jewish rabbis and chief priests, the one who sat at the opposite end of the triclinium was the lowest of the guests. Slave of the slaves. And the account in John 13 tells us that it was Peter who ended up sitting there. And when Jesus rose from the table and disrobed and put a cloth around him to go and wash the disciples' feet, remember what happened when he came to Peter. Peter said, no, you'll never wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Oh, to be his follower was much different. It was to be a slave of slaves, a slave of all. And as we come to this glorious Resurrection Sunday, it begs the question, how do you see yourself if you are a follower of Christ? The second group, immediately affected by his resurrection, would have been none other than the guards. These were trained Roman soldiers. I'll read you a piece about them. Soldiers were appointed uh, because of their virtue, bravery, loyalty, character, and, and prowess in battle. Centurions were held to high standards of conduct and were expected to fight on the front lines with their men. In fact, the centurion's designated place in formation was at the end of the very front row. And as a result, Roman centurions were well paid, high esteemed. They had a combination of wealth, power and prestige and influence in the society. And we find that these Pharisees went to Pilate to ask that Jesus' tomb be sealed. We'll get to it in a minute, but we know that Pilate commanded that a guard be given to them. This would have been none other than the same band of soldiers that operated at the northwest of the temple uh, known as the Antonio Fortress today, the, the Tower of Antonio, those same centurions and guards would have navigated the crowd to the cross, would have been responsible for making certain all three were dead. They would have come back to fulfill their duty 
at the tower. And when the priest appealed for uh, the tomb to be sealed and Pilate said, you have a guard, see to it that it is secure, it would have been those soldiers that went. A third group that was immediately affected by the resurrection of Jesus Christ would have been not a group so much as just an individual. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. In Matthew 27, verse 57 and surrounding, we find that Joseph was a wealthy man. He was a council member. He was one who waited for the kingdom of God. And yet... We also find in various nuances in the Gospels that he had become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he did not consent to the action that the council made to crucify him. Lastly, the women. The women were immediately affected by his resurrection. Oh yes, the 11 were as well, but this morning we're, we're kind of focused on these few. As we read in verse 1 that it said, the first day of the week, uh, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. Various Passages in all four of the Gospels help us know who these women were. Do you know who they are? One, of course, was Mary Magdalena. From the city of Magdala, is which she gets her name, she was one whom Jesus had cast out evil spirits, seven of them. There is rumor that she was also... Uh, the one who washed his feet, a woman who was a sinner, Luke 7, 37. But there's no real scriptural truth for that. It's not substantiated that Mary Magdalena was a prostitute, though Magdala was very well known as being a city of prostitution. She was one of the women there at the tomb. Another was another Mary... Uh, Matthew 13.55 tells us that there was a Mary that is this not the carpenter's son? Is, it not, is not his mother Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Simon uh, and Judas? And yet we find in another gospel that this Mary is the mother of Joseph. So very possibly Jesus' mother, a third woman there was a woman named Salome. Who is she? She is none other than the wife of Zebedee. Do you remember the importance of Zebedee in the Gospels? They had two sons, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Remember what those boys wanted to do? They wanted to sit on the left and on the right hand of Jesus. Salome was there. We know that James and John 
They were bold enough to come to Jesus one day and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Can you imagine coming to the the Son of God, God incarnate himself, and saying, I want you to do whatever I ask of you. Not that anyone here has ever done that. But maybe at times in our hearts of heart, we think that he's some spiritual genie that is responsible to do what we ask of him to do. When consequently, though he said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The key there is in my name. In other words, under the umbrella and under the the, the canopy of the fact that he is savior of your life, Lord of your life, and because he is Lord, you've submitted your life to every part of his good and perfect will. Is that the case this morning? Yes, Salome was there, the mother of James and John, and finally, one more lady we would be remiss to not name. Her name was Joanna. And Joanna was one of several of the women who had been uh, delivered by Jesus, had, had either a physical healing or actual evil spirits cast out, Luke chapter 8, verse 2. She also was the wife of one named Chuza, C-H-U-Z-A, the manager of Herod Antipas' household and estate, she was a woman of means and influence. And yet she was fine. A woman of means and influence. Fine with a woman like Mary Magdalena. Are there times in your lives where you see yourself above the company of someone else? And yet we find in the household of faith that no, brother and sister, this morning, if you believe in Christ, if you've asked Christ into your life, then the fact of the matter is we are all the same at the foot of the cross. We are cut from the same cloth. We are human. And he is divine. Four groups immediately impacted by his resurrection. I'd like to move us on to now their reactions to the resurrection and the empty tomb. Let's consider the reaction of the priest, chief priests and Pharisees. We find in various passages in the gospel, uh, Matthew 27:64. Matthew 13, 58, that they were angry. They had plans to deceive their community. Imagine that. A religious leader trying to deceive a community of people. How horrible. And yet, we have witnessed that through the course of decades of of church history, have we not? 
talking with someone recently. And over the years, I get a chance to share. At times, I find someone who's been bruised by what has happened in the church. Or they're uncomfortable with finding a church family because of something that has happened in the church collectively. The dear late Pastor Chuck Smith used to remind us young would-be ministers when we went and sat under his tutelage for a couple of years, you know, you can't trust church history to define the Christian faith. You can't. If we look at church history, we look at things like the Inquisition, killing of masses of people in order to demand that some come to a given faith. We find failure in the church because the church is filled with people. One such failure. I love it. This morning as we were praying, getting ready for our service this morning, um, Pastor Austin brought to my attention, he said, Art, have you seen the bulletin today? I said, no. And he showed me the bulletin. Well, if you have one, what you'll see is the front is this way, but when you open the inside, it's upside down. Did you notice that? Maybe you did. And I said, that's great. It proves that we're imperfect. A church, a body of believers is filled with imperfect people that are seeking to know and walk with and have a relationship with a perfect Savior. The priests and the Pharisees asked Pilate to put a guard. They wanted to deceive the people. Matthew 27, 64, they said, Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say, that, say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception would be worse than the first. Talk about deceiving. Yes, their reaction was fear, anger, a willingness to deceive the people, and they were constantly filled with unbelief. The second group, the soldiers, what was their reaction? Well, we find in Matthew 28, 4, when the angel of the Lord came and rolled the stone away from the tomb, that these Roman guards, fully trained, armed for war, quote, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men and ran away. Their reaction was fear, dread, and to run from the moment. I'd like to share with you a, a powerful truth about the, the sealing of the tomb. As we read in Matthew 27, the chief priest asked for the tomb to be sealed. And in that day and in that culture, a tomb, you kind of got to get your mind wrapped around it. It's not like a cemetery that we would go to today or a mortuary. Um, if you've ever been to the Middle East, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's all rock and stone. There's not much wood at all. And so what they would do is, in order to 
to care for the dead and bury the dead, they would carve out areas of a mountainside and make a tomb from a rock-like cave. And then they would to keep the odor and the stench and the decomposition of the body in check, they would cover that cave with a rock or something. Now, as you were more wealthy in life, those, of course, those graves, tombs would become more eloquent. And we know that this tomb was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man, so it was a well-hewn tomb. And the stone that went over it was carved and put in a, a rock trough, and it would roll over the cover of the tomb. And those rock coverings would be extremely heavy. Hundreds, if not of pounds, they were placed in such a way that the leverage would allow the, the rock to roll over and, and boom, set in place and cover. But to seal, to seal the tomb meant something different. It meant that the guards were to put the seal of Rome on this tomb. They would, there are various historical accounts of how that was accomplished. We believe it to be true in Jesus' account that wax would have been melted. A cord or several cords would have been brought into the mix. Wax would have been applied to the rolling cover and to the secure mountainside, hot somehow, the cord would have been placed in the wax, allowed it to dry, so that if that cover moved, those cords would be broken. And if those cords were broken, whoever would do that was in effect saying, we defy the power of the empire of Rome. <laughs> and an angel of the Lord came and said, Poo. In fact, the Greek grammar, rolled away, is a word that, de that declares it was actually lifted and tossed. Defying the empire of Rome. And the guards run away. Joseph of Arimathea's reaction to the resurrection, there's no real record. Um, no real record of, of a specific reaction from him. But now let's come to the women. Their reaction. First of all, we see that they were perplexed. Look at verse 3. Uh, they did not find, they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them, shining garments. So their initial reaction to the resurrection of Christ is perplexity. They're, they don't quite understand it.
Perhaps there's a question in there. You know, they, don't you remember? They had just finished preparing spices to cover the body. And so what they were on their way to go do, there was an interruption. Hey, wait a minute. Life is supposed to be like this. This happens, and I'm interrupted now. Uh, I was planning to go through life this way, and then this happens, and now my life is interrupted. I'm perplexed by that. Are you perplexed today? Have there been interruptions in your life that you didn't plan on? As a child of God, you, you thought very clearly I could just navigate, you know, safe travel from one dock to the other. And yet, you and I both find that if we metaphorically are on the sea in the ship of life and we have securely asked Christ to captain the vessel, the captain of our salvation, that he will steer that vessel where he will. And yet his intent is always good to work everything together in your life for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And you might say this morning, well, Pastor Art, but some of the stuff happening in my life is hard and it's a challenge. And I say to you, okay, God knows that. Jesus knows that. And he is, there is no temptation that has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful that with every temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Amen? That's what he promises. He may take you to the edge of what you can handle, but he won't give you more than you can handle. Because in what he's taking you to the edge for, he's saying, trust me, fall upon me, Grab hold of me. Don't let go of me. I died to save you and bring you hope. Is that you and me this morning? They were perplexed. But that followed with some revelation and reverence. Verse 5, we read it. They were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth. And they, meaning the two men standing there, the angels, said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again? Don't you remember? Remember he said this to you, and the light went on. Revelation and reverence. The initial was a perplexity, followed by revelation and reverence. Oh, my God, he's actually doing what he said he would do. My prayer for every Christian this morning, and you know, I start with myself, is that I would remember every time I come to 
a moment of perplexity. Oh, my God, you do what you say you will do. And that it would create revelation and reverence in every day of life, every moment of challenge, and every joy. Because they went from perplexity to revelation and reverence to what? To uncontainable joy. Verse 9, Then they returned to the t- uh, from the tomb and told all these things to eleven. Can't you just see him running? Guess what? He's alive. He's not there. The tomb is empty. You can say amen. Are you perplexed today? Maybe you're at that spot where I'm just not sure what this is all about. Maybe you're headed toward new revelation and, and a place of reverence where you're willing to bend that knee again. Maybe you walked through those doors this morning with uncontainable joy. I don't know, but what I'd like to close us with this morning is the third of these calculations which has to do with the change that took place in each one of these groups and individuals. The change for the priests and the Pharisees. Let's take it in succession. The change for them as a result of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a loss of religious control and social status. That's number one. They were going to lose this high position in life that they had enjoyed for so long because now God Almighty had chosen to initiate a new covenant, a covenant of grace. It, do, it did not and does not annul the law of God because we're told all throughout the New Testament, Paul tells us in his letters that the law is good. But Paul reminds his readers as well as we are reminded this morning, but that what the law could not do, God did in sending his only begotten son because the law can't make us Righteous before God. You could keep every jot and tittle in your and my heart today of what it means to be a Christian. What you and I kind of roll that up into a list of, well, I better read my Bible, better go to church, I better pray, better be nice to people once in a while, whatever. Uh, Whatever that list is, what's your list? What's your list? The law does not make us acceptable in the eyes of God. In fact, all of the righteous things that we do, Isaiah tells us our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is one thing and one thing alone that allows you and I to be accepted in the eyes of the Father, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ alone. 
And the Pharisees and Sadducees and the chief priests would lose a status, but even a more desperate change would be they stand with a pending judgment on their lives for a refusal, a refusal to receive Christ as the Messiah, the promised one. It's a remarkable change as a result of the resurrection. The guards, what was the change in their lives? Those ones that were at the tomb. Well, up on the screen you'll see the Gospels bear out that these same chief priests and Pharisees came to those guards and bribed them, gave them money to keep silent about what had happened at the tomb. And they accepted it. And so whoever they were, they chose, though trained, mighty Roman warriors, they chose to live the rest of their life bribed to live a lie. Knowing what was true, knowing what they had seen, knowing what had been clearly demonstrated before their eyes, they chose to live the rest of their lives in a lie. It's a horrific change. Rather than the, the nobility and the pride and the, the influence in a community, maybe some of you know someone today that, that refuses to walk in truth, that lives each day of their life somewhat cloaked by by uh, false assumptions and perspectives and they're not free. It's a horrific change from what they used to be. A third individual, Joseph of of America, can't say it, Arimathea. I wonder what the change was. I wonder what the change was in his life. There is no real record uh, scripturally as we go through the Gospels, and he's not mentioned later on in Acts or uh, so forth. But, you know, what was the change in, in Joseph's life as a result of the resurrection? We know he gave his tomb. We know he was there and brought Christ down from the cross and wrapped him in fine linen and laid him in the tomb. But, but once Jesus rose, what was, what was the change in his life? No real record, but we do know this. He got his tomb back. For the day that he would go on, it would now be waiting there for him. Oh, I pray one day if you ever get the chance, you'd go to Jerusalem. The garden tomb area is amazing. They have found what we believe to be the actual tomb of Jesus. And you can go and sit in that garden tomb area. The gospel message will be presented. 
You can see this carved out area in the mountainside. Joseph would have gotten his tomb back. But lastly this morning, the change in the life of these women. What was the change in their life as a result of the resurrection? I think this is where this morning's topical study, I hope, will land concretely with you and me. If you're taking note, first, there are four that I see as changes. First, their faith was made secure. Their faith was made secure. The resurrection of Christ from the grave, the empty tomb, produced a security of faith in their lives. They believed. They walked with him. But they came to put spices on his body. And now the confidence of their Savior, their Lord, has resurrected. Their faith is secure. And so is their eternal consequence. The promise of dying and spending eternity with the Father. Secondly, they had now an internal and external unspeakable joy. We see that they, they ran to tell the others that the tomb is empty, that he's alive. And that translates not only past these women that that uh, Luke's account gives us, the other accounts give us, does it not, uh, beloved, does it not translate to you and I this morning, because the tomb is empty, our faith should be secure, and our joy should be unspeakable. There's a footnote when it comes to the joy of the Lord. Do you know what that footnote is? We're told in, uh, in the Old Testament that the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? The footnote is this, is that joy is, and particularly biblical joy, is way different. It's a quantum leap away from happiness. Happiness, you've heard me share it, I'll share it again. Happiness is a condition of soul, heart, attitude, countenance, a condition of soul that is dependent upon circumstance. My circumstances are good, all is going well, no problems in my life, I'm happy. Joy on the other hand, biblical joy is a condition of soul, countenance, heart, that is independent of circumstance. One is dependent upon circumstances being good. This one is independent of circumstance because it is 
a spiritual fruit, joy. It is a spiritual fruit by way of the Holy Spirit active and alive in your heart. Do you have, as a result of the empty tomb and a confidence secure in your faith, the joy of the Lord this morning? I hope so. I pray so. Independent of the circumstance, hard, difficult, rough, challenging, that you might be in the middle of, the joy of God. Hallelujah. Happiness comes and goes. Two more. A third thing that took place in the change of these women was that they now had an unending hope for his imminent return. If he said he would rise again, he also said, I'll come again. He said, it's needful that I leave you, that I go, because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, what did he say? Come again to receive you unto myself. That you may be with me always. And you're sitting here this morning going, I sure wish he'd hurry up and get here. Yeah, I do too. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because the promise of his coming is is certain. There's no doubt. And yet, he waited for you. And you. And you. And me. He chose to wait until we would come to faith so that we might have a secure faith, an unspeakable joy, to share in this world alone. Is there not someone in your life path that you have yet, that you love and would desperately love to see to come to know Christ? And so Jesus says, well, I know you want me to come, but there's just a few more in my horizon I've got my eye on. An unending hope for his imminent return. Lastly, this morning, the fourth and probably most tangible change. You know what it is? Chris is going to put it up there. Look at that. A life under persecution by an unbelieving world. That was a change in their life as a result of a resurrected Christ. Because with a faith secure, an unspeakable joy, a confidence of his imminent return, they couldn't keep silent. And yet the unbelieving world hated to hear that, didn't want to hear that. That went completely against the religious systems that we have in place. Don't bring that Jesus stuff here. How's your life going? 
You think our brothers and sisters in Ukraine would identify this morning? Do you think our brothers and sisters in Africa and Albania, other parts of the world where being a Christian can actually bring physical threat of death, would identify? Do you assume that that will never happen in the great United States of America? Oh, beloved, be warned. The divide is becoming clearer. And should your life right now be absolutely absent of any persecution because of your secure faith, unspeakable joy, and the proclamation of his imminent return, then, then there's a component yet missing that I pray will come to your doorstep. And it will come in such a way that you will know, ah, this, this is because of who I am in Christ. This is because he did rise. And so, I, you know, one of the things they say in public speaking, they say, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Right? So I said to you that I'm going to close with a question. And here's the question How would you calculate your life as it relates to the resurrection? Three possibilities. Those of you who may be watching at home, I hope you've heard it all. Number one, are you still filled with unbelief and in the threat of a pending judgment because of your refusal to receive Christ? Don't leave here today if that's you. If you're at home watching, don't turn off this channel until you take opportunity to say, God, I see today that you sent your son for me. I believe that he died for my sin. I ask for his forgiveness. Come into my life and live your life through me, Jesus. Let us pray that with you before you go. The Bible tells us that we are living in a dispensation called uh, the time of the Gentiles. God's attention right now is not toward the Israeli, toward the Jew, but a day will come when he will turn again his attention to the Jews that, uh, that have refused to recognize him as the Messiah. Don't wait until that day. Is there a threat of pending judgment? Secondly, would you categorize yourself as someone who's still kind of living the lie? Oh, you know it's true. You know what truth is. You, you've heard it enough, but you're just not willing yet to embrace it. To make the calculation of that I, I need to submit to this truth. And so you spend most of your time just kind of running from the truth 
whether you are privileged, accepted in society, a person of influence or not, you're just not quite ready. Someone else has bribed you, and his name is the adversary of God. Or lastly, would you categorize yourself as these gals? A secure faith. An unspeakable joy. I know he's coming. I don't know when. It might be before I die, but it might be after. But I know he's coming. And yet, there are times when that faith brings great persecution into my life. Would you categorize yourself there? I'll leave you to answer that question on this great, those questions, on this great day. Maybe you can even share your answer as your family gathers at the table. You can revisit these truths. Will you join me as we close with a word of prayer? Worship team. Father, we thank you for your mercy today. We know that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for your word, that it is food to our spiritual man. We thank you for the work of your spirit today, bringing to us peace again, hope, strength and yet on this day Lord we especially thank you that the tomb is empty and because it's empty we live Lord we long for your return and yet while we wait we will worship we will serve we will declare you to each and everyone we know. Watch over us, Lord, we pray. Revive your church. Revive us. For we ask it in Jesus' name.